Aaron Smith <clears throat> was a man who was tired of the typical online dating scene. He was tired of waiting and swiping and everything that happened within trying to find someone to go out with, hopefully to be his mate. So he decided to take things into his own hands. He decided to create his own dating app. And he called this dating app Singularity, Online Dating Simplified. Well, the reason he simplified it is because there was only one person on the app. And it was him. And you got your subscription to the app, and as you swiped for the next one, you got a new scene, a new picture, a new outfit, a new location, but the same guy. He's still waiting to find a wife. I don't know why that would surprise us, but he was singular in his devotion to himself. And really, that's the way many people come to Jesus, isn't it? It's a singularity, but it's a singularity directed toward themselves, what they bring to the kingdom, not understanding their sinfulness, not understanding that they need someone in their stead before God. It's a singularity that actually mirrors but breaks the way God created us. Because see, God created us in his image. A singularity focused toward him. But sin in the world destroys that. And see, many people, once they come to Christ, they look back on that process and they want to look at all the things they did. They want to look at all the things they brought to the table. Whether it's, I chose him, or I'm a gift to the kingdom, or isn't everything better now that I'm a Christian, they're still looking to find some way to hold on to something that they have done for their salvation. Maybe some of you in this room are the same way. Maybe when you think about salvation, you think back to the time that you chose Christ. Now, there's a truth to that, yes, it's not a matter of whether people who come to Christ have to choose him. It's a matter on what basis they do that. Is it because of their own wisdom? Is it because of their own smarts or their own situation or their own education? Or have their choosers been changed? And the Bible says our wanters, our choosers have been changed. But yet once they're changed, we're still fighting sin. And even in this life, we tend to fight it in our own strength often, don't we? We, we, we act as if God hasn't redeemed us. We act as if God hasn't acted in the world in this major, miraculous way in sending his son for the salvation of sinners. And we could fall into the same trap. See, part of that self-diagnosis that we're always going through is where am I not seeing the glory of God in that around me? Where am I not depending on what God has done in Christ for the everyday needs of my life? It is so simple to back into the old way of thinking. You see, God is constantly revealing himself in the scriptures. And the more we study the scriptures, the bigger our God gets. Amen? If, if, if God doesn't get bigger as we study, if God doesn't get bigger as we live and depend and exercise faith, if God doesn't get bigger for us as we gather in community, then we're focused on ourselves and not him. Because he is... He, he, we cannot fathom the bigness, the greatness, the grandeur, the beauty, the mystery, the glory of God. So it's a constant reevaluating. Where am I getting in the way of that? See, Isaiah wanted the people in Babylon to be asking that question. 
Because they're in captivity. They're in captivity for their own sinfulness. And it would be very tempting for them to look back at what God has done in the past and think, well, he's not going to act that way now because I can't do what I need to do. Or he's not gonna, he may have acted that way in the past, but I think he's forgotten about us now. They can be thinking all these thoughts that are singularity focused, but they're focused on themselves instead of the greatness and grandeur of God. And this entire section of Isaiah from chapter 40 through 48, we are seeing this constant repetitive um, arrangement of thought where God reveals himself and who he is to his people and who his people are. And then he shows that his people are trying to live for their own glory instead of his, trusting in idols instead of himself, living in sinfulness instead of obeying him. And then he reminds them that he never changes and he intends to redeem a people for himself from that nation and reminds them that he is going to do that and he never changes. And then he sets out the challenge to all those who want to trust in other gods. Who can do this but me? It's a constant Um, reminder for us. Now, if Isaiah takes the time to constantly remind the people that are in captivity, and at the same time, the people at the time he's writing, remember the, the, the setting of Isaiah that we have looked at for the last many months, where chapters 1 through 39 are directed toward Isaiah's day in the late 8th and, and early 7th century before Christ. And then when we get to chapter 40, the gaze of Isaiah, God's message, reaches out further into the southern kingdom's captivity 140 years later. And so it's not that it doesn't mean anything to the people that Isaiah is writing to, because it does, and we'll show that this morning. And it's not that it doesn't mean anything to us, but God is a great and grand God, and he can speak to the future because he controls the future. Remember, we've seen that over and over already since we got into Isaiah chapter 40, haven't we? This is God who knows what has been done in the past, why it's been done, and he knows what will be done in the future, and he challenges all the little G gods to say, if you can't do this, then step aside. Always as a reminder of, of, uh, to his people, they can't do this. It's only me. And our passage before us today does the same thing. But it challenges the idea of self-sufficiency in a way that I don't think we've seen in Isaiah yet. So where are you standing today? How many moments in your week are spent thinking you are the king of your own universe? Thinking that you have everything you need to do everything that you're called to do. Thinking that any struggle that comes your way, you are perfectly suited to, to take hold of that struggle and walk in a godly way. You see, it's so easy to do all of that and with our lips give glory to God and our lives act as if he hasn't redeemed us. So the challenge in Isaiah's day is the same as the challenge in our day. Trust in the Lord. He is the one who sustains you. Turn to Isaiah. If you're not already there, Isaiah 43. Our sections of scripture that we're covering on a Sunday morning are larger in this section because of this repetition that we see. I want, I want to let Isaiah's structure speak to us. Now, there's disagreement on where this should be divided. Some people divide it with the, with the songs or, the, or the, the peons of praise. Some people divide it with the idolatry side of things. So we're, I'm endeavoring to hold this all together for us so we can see what God is doing through Isaiah for his people. So we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 14, and read through Isaiah 44, verse 8. 
And before I even read that, just know that verses six, seven, and eight of chapter 44 are kind of a hinge verse. They precede the idolatry section that we'll look at next week, but they also conclude the verses that we're looking at today. So let's stand together as I read our sermon text for this morning, beginning in Isaiah 43, 14. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a, rick, uh, like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet, you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices, I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance Let us argue together, set forth your case, that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says Yahweh, who made you, formed you from the womb, and will help you, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am Yahweh's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, Yahweh's, the name himself by the name of Israel, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. 
The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. I must take a moment to share with you something joyful. And I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I was approached by one of our children today. This was their memory verse. And when this, this young one quoted me this verse, the grass withers and the flower falls. What's your part? Please be seated. My day was made. The verse was quoted perfectly and added, and please be seated. And why does that make my day? Because this little one is listening when you worship and worshiping with you when you worship. That's why we want our children in worship because as they're learning about God, as they're learning about his son Jesus and the power of the spirit, they're watching you worship in spirit and in truth with the word central. And she had a smile on her face the whole way through. She knows that's not part of the scripture passage. But she also knew it would bring me joy and it did. So I hope it did to you as well. In these verses, Yahweh proclaims five promises concerning deliverance for his people. Five promises concerning deliverance for his people. The first promise, Yahweh is able to deliver his people from Babylon. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Thus says Yahweh, and then we get this this litany of his character and what he claims about himself. But I want you to notice the intimacy with his people. We have seen these words over and over in Isaiah. They're not new to us. We don't need to go back through and dissect them and remind us of all their meaning. But every time we see them, God has a purpose in bringing them to us. And so in verse 14, we first see, thus says, Yahweh, the covenant redeemer, the covenant God of Israel. That word Yahweh, the, the all, Lord in all caps, reminds us that he is a covenant faithful God. He sets out the covenant, he fulfills the covenant, he will not violate the covenant. So when he promises to redeem a people for himself, he will redeem a people for himself. When he promises judgment on his enemies, he will bring judgment on his enemies. He is faithful to his own character. But he also says, your redeemer, not just a redeemer, but your redeemer. God is the redeemer of his people. And once we are redeemed, and all the way through, we have to conflate our new covenant understanding of the old covenant text. Now, I don't want to diminish what's talked about in the old covenant and and in Isaiah's day. We'll apply that to those people there. But we also need to remember for us that Jesus is our redeemer. He has redeemed us. He is redeeming us. And he will redeem us and it will all be finished when he when he comes again and it builds our faith and trust why because it's not he has redeemed us now I have to keep redeeming myself wouldn't that be onerous wouldn't that be horrible I've redeemed you but every day now you got to keep it going yourself he is our redeemer and look what he says as he's speaking to these people remember the 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 people Isaiah, the day of Isaiah in the late um, 8th, early 7th century, God has their minds focused not only for them, but also for the people that will be in captivity in Babylon from the southern kingdom in Babylon. Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. 30 times in the book of Isaiah we see Holy One of Israel. And it reminds us of his character, but it also remembers, reminds us that he is the God of his people and these are his people. 
So the Holy One of Israel, that's not new to us. We've seen it. We will see a little bit of a twist in just a moment. Skip to verse 15. He reminds them again that he is Yahweh, your Holy One. You see the intimacy? It's, it's not just God is out there, the Holy One of His people. He is your Holy One. He is yours. You are His people and you are His God. And this is an intimate description. And remember, we're going back and forth from reminding Israel of their unfaithfulness to reminding them of the faithfulness of God. Well, if we're going to remind them of the faithfulness of God, we have to remind them of the character of God and the nature of God, and that this Holy One will never violate that holy character, and He is holy on their behalf. He also says, verse 15, the Creator of Israel... Now, this language has seeped in in the last few chapters, right? I have formed you. I have created you. You are my creation, and it will stay with us in the next few chapters as well. Again, this is God talking about the nation as a people. He's formed them. Now, remember, we go back and forth between forming them individually as human beings and then spiritually as redeemed. And we also find times where he talks about them as a nation. There's lots of nation language in our passage today. So I am the creator of Israel, your king. Now automatically, if, he's, if we have a king, what's our first thought? We need to obey our king. Our king is there for a purpose. He's not just there to say, oh, he's our king, and then we go live the way we want. The king sets the tone for the kingdom, sets the commands for the kingdom. And God is a benevolent king for his people. He sets out a kingdom that is glorious to walk in because he is their provision even if they're in captivity in Babylon, even if they're walking through suffering like you might be now, even if you're walking through trials, tribulations, persecutions, he's still the king. He has still set out um, his kingdom as something that's joyful, as something that he is sovereignly advancing, and you and I have a role in it. So already Isaiah God is speaking through Isaiah to remind us of who God is before he talks about anything else at all so that our trust is settled in this king of the universe. But look what he says in in verse 14. For your sake, mark that, for your sake, he's acting in this particular case for the sake of his people, I send to Babylon. Sends who? Sends what? We're not told here because what we're supposed to see is that God is the one doing the sending. That's what stands out for us. God in his character, God is the one doing the sending. Now, next, in the next chapter, in in the end of 44 and beginning of 45, we will see this ruler Cyrus be brought into focus by name. Now, you know that we've already seen him alluded to before in Isaiah, but we'll see him by name very quickly. So we're already expecting Cyrus because we've read chapter 44 and 45, right? But here, our purpose is to see that it is God who is doing the sending. He is sending something or someone to Babylon for what? Look at the verse, look at the text. And bring them all, that are the Babylonians, all their warriors, all their people, all their rulers, bring them all down as fugitives. Even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice, are the ships of their rejoicing. 
Now, the Chaldeans, your version may say the Babylonians. In most of Scripture, the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, you can interchange their names. The Chaldeans were an ancient Semitic group that fought with Assyria over the control of Babylon. But in the Scriptures, especially the historical books and the, and the prophets, even more especially in Jeremiah, the Chaldeans represent the Babylonians. So um, when, when he says the Chaldeans, it's just the poetic way of saying Babylonians, Chaldeans, read them together unless there's a reason not to. In all of the times they're used in, in Isaiah, six different times, the Chaldeans equal the Babylonians. So he's talking about the Babylonians, the ones who are holding Israel captive, and he said, I'm going to send to where you are, and I'm going to destroy your enemies. As if they're trying to escape on the ships, I will take care of them. Just one little line, one little line. All of God's character, here's what I'm going to do, more of God's character. If you're ever going to use a compliment sandwich, this is the time to do it, right? When God is in, in, in view here. So there's a promise of physical redemption here, And if you and I were part of Israel in captivity in Babylon, wouldn't that be good news for us? It would be good news for us, thinking we're forgotten. This is a time of sorrow. Keep your finger in Isaiah, and I want you to turn back to the Psalms. Turn to Psalm 137. We've looked at this Psalm before in Isaiah, but I want us to remember, this is the situation the Israelites were in the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing of us one sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Yahweh, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall, be, shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them on the rocks. Hard verses. But this is what it's like when, when the Israelites, when the southern kingdom is living without God, they think they can have no songs for praise. So when Isaiah, when God speaks through Isaiah and he says, sing to me a new song, this is where he's speaking to. This is the people he's reminding, you have reason to sing because I'm still your God. I am your redeemer. I am your holy one. And I will send someone to overcome your enemies. But this passage isn't all about just physical deliverance, is it? The first truth, the first promise of deliverance is physical deliverance, deliverance from Babylon. But the second promise, Yahweh has delivered his people in the past through the Exodus, but now he is doing a new thing, culminating in deliverance through a new Exodus. So don't idolize the past. That's a summary of 16 through 21. Look at verse 16, back in Isaiah 43, if you haven't turned back there. Isaiah 43, 16. Thus says Yahweh, 
And then he starts talking about himself, what he has done, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Now what's that a picture of? That's that picture of the Exodus that Israel is always pointed back to and and says, our God can deliver us. He has delivered us and he will deliver us. And so God is pointing them back saying, this is he. I am he. I am the one who have done all these things. Remember that Exodus where, where God parted the water so the Israelites walk on dry ground and Pharaoh and all the Egyptian soldiers have the water come on top of them. And the Bible says that they saw the bodies of all those soldiers on the shore. Complete and total destruction of their enemies. And God says, I am the God who did that. Remember, this is one of the things that sets him apart from all the other gods, right? He can tell what he did, why he did it, what he accomplished through it. So he reminds them of all these things. Look at verse 16 where it says, thus says the Yahweh, thus says the Lord. Then we jump to verse 18. This is what he says. This is Yahweh who has done this in the past. Now this is what he's telling them to listen to. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Now, we can be confused right now, right? Now, wait a minute. My, my daddy and my granddaddy and my great-granddaddy, they have all pointed back and told me to remember that. The scriptures tell us over and over to remember the God who delivered his people. You, Yahweh, just reminded us of that, and now you're saying, forget about it. Don't remember that. So is he telling him to wipe it from his memory? No. He's reminding the people of his power, and he's saying, I still work miracles. I still deliver my people. Remember earlier in Isaiah, we, we met in the first servant song, we met this, this one who would not, not bruise the, the, the slightly burning wick, the promise that, that the, the coming Messiah would not bruise those who were already weak. That's one side of the character of God. The other side of the character of God is that he will bruise those who are the enemies, those who he will bruise them until they are just a wick with no ability to burn. But he says, I've done that in the past, but now I'm doing a new thing. This idea of a new thing, it's not new to us for Isaiah, right? We've already learned that God has held out to them. He's working in a new way. Now, this doesn't mean that the old doesn't matter. It means I'm the same God and I will work. I will work in what ways I see fit to do what I want to do. And we're going to see our shift go from physical deliverance to spiritual deliverance. Look at verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Now there's the hint of why he's saying, don't keep looking at the past. We look at the past, but I tell people this all the time. Why are we looking at the past? We look at the past to drive us forward into the future. We look at what God has done in the past to strengthen our faith today, so we look to the future to see what God is doing and how he's moving and how he's working, how he's sustaining, how he's advancing his kingdom. We look to the past to strengthen our faith so that we can look to the future to understand his power and his might. That's what he's telling his people. He's saying, do you not see it? I'm working around you. Do you not see it? Well, the obvious answer is no, because their eyes are still focused in the past with regret that God is not doing that now or lack of hope that he will do it again. And he says, I'm already doing this new thing. 
Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. You feel the change? The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So this is that picture, as we all often see in the prophets and we have seen in Isaiah, of a physical scenario being given to prepare us or to describe a spiritual reality. Now, oftentimes in the destruction parts of Isaiah, where God is saying, I'm going to destroy a nation, we have seen the creation be brought into that. Remember where, where the people will be so destroyed that they will leave and the wild animals will come in and they'll set up home. But we've also seen the same thing when he is involved in restoration, where those wild animals that are now living are going to be sent back into their, their fruitful surroundings and things will be restored back to normal. And that's the language that's being used here. We've already seen it in chapter 40, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 35, we've seen a lot of this, of the restoration and the picture of God's creation and representing that. But we're moving to drink For my chosen people in the end of 20, the people whom I formed for myself, reminding God's people of who they are, that they might declare my praise. He is working for them, but he has ultimate goals for his praise to be sung. Now, that's why God works all the time. If you and I go around seeking our own glory, it's sinful. If God doesn't seek his own glory, he's not God. Because he is the one that's above all things. Therefore, he seeks his own glory because it's the only thing that he can get. There's no one else he has to look around. And he will say this to us. There's no one else. He, no one else that he looks around and sees who is like him. So God is constantly wanting his own glory because that's by definition who he is. And he says his people might declare his praise. Right now, their harps are hung in the trees. And he says, look at what I'm doing around you. I'm about to restore you as as if giving water in a thirsty land. And that metaphor will drive us forward in our text. We'll talk about it more when we get to chapter 44. But I want to draw your attention to the idea that they might declare my praise. This is what we do. This is what you and I do. Our lives are meant to declare the praise of our God and his son Jesus and the spirit that that unites us and drives us and carries on the mission of the son. We are to declare his praise in word, in deed, in our songs, our testimony. It is all about him. We have a singularity, do we not? And it's all about Christ and not about us. That doesn't mean we can't ever talk about our life. I used to be like this and God intervened and now I'm like this. Praise to him. But how many times have you heard a 10-minute testimony with nine and a half minutes of how bad they used to be? Oh, yeah, Jesus saved me. Now they sit down. It should be the other way. I was a horrible human being. Maybe you have to tell us why, but then you can't, you have to be, the preacher needs to come and get you and say, it's time to sit down because you have so much praise to give to your God. Now, I submit to you that this is a key to living in joy. It's not the only key, but it is one of the keys of living in joy. Because if you are going to look at every situation you're in and realize that God formed you for himself, that you might declare his praise, you start looking around at the world and your situation, finding things to do what? Praise him for. Thank him for. You're not looking around complaining about everything. Okay, you probably never do this. 
I should not look around and complain about everything. I should be praising God. And if I'm praising God, it's really hard to complain about what God has sovereignly done, isn't it? It's difficult to do. And God's reminding them, no matter if you are in captivity in Babylon, I have created you to praise me. Yet, look at the very next verse. Yet. Bum, bum, bum. We should just feel a sadness coming over us. We want to say, and you have done that. That's what we want to hear. But we hear yet, and we go, "Uh uh-oh. So this third, as we enter into the third promise concerning deliverance, Yahweh will not deliver, but utterly destroy those who refuse to call upon and trust in him for their spiritual deliverance. Remember the singularity illustration we had earlier? Where a man creates the dating app with only himself on it? And we recognize the propensity in our life to live our life like that, that we are the king of our own life. This is what Israel is doing. This is what Judah is doing. Judah is living in this way, and it's causing them struggles. Their witness is bad, and God is addressing that through Isaiah. Yet, verse 22, you did not call upon me. Now in the Hebrew, and, and if you study this at all, every commentator in the world brings it out because it's important. This, the, the word me is in the emphatic position. Yet me you did not call upon. It's, it's weird to hear you didn't call, but it's me. It's God that is saying, I created you to declare my praise, but you didn't call upon me. You're, you're in a situation where the only thing you should be doing is calling upon your God, but me, you did not call upon. Upon me, you did not call. So there's the idea that they are calling, but they haven't called unto him. So what's going on with them? Are they calling out to other gods? Are they just neglecting God altogether? That's what we're about to find out. In the parallel phrase, yet me you did not call upon, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. Do you see how they're backward there? We've seen Jacob and Israel several times reminding us that Jacob, that, that um, Israel, that is, Jacob's name was changed to Israel as a symbol of the change that God did when he created this people. And he says, you did not call upon me, Jacob, but Going back, going back, you have been weary of me, O Israel. You've been changed, but now you're weary of me. Now, I hope when you hear this word weary, which weary and burdensome will drive us in the next few verses, but turn back to chapter 40. Turn back to chapter 40. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. If we are, not to, if we are to be a people who doesn't grow spiritually weary, we are to wait on the Lord. If we're walking in a situation that doesn't seem like it can be the best, God is in charge of that, and we are to wait on Him. Israel, Judah, being in captivity in Babylon, should be calling upon and waiting upon Him. But look back in chapter 43 at verse 22. But you have been weary of me. If you wait on me, you will not be weary, but you're not calling or waiting upon me, so now you're showing that you're weary of me. How are they weary of him? Verse 23, you have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. Well, if we're thinking, they're not near the temple. The temple is not at their disposal. It's destroyed and they're in Babylon. So how would they do that? So is God blaming them for something that they can't actually accomplish? Or is he actually addressing their hearts at whatever they're doing? And I would submit to you as addressing their hearts because it is in their stress and their struggle that they're wearying of their God. Now remember that sacrificial system was put in place so that God's people knew how to draw near to him. And when he put them into captivity, they could not draw near to him in that way, but they were still to worship. Remember Daniel? Daniel is in captivity, and for all the years of his life, he's still praying when he's supposed to pray, and he's doing all the things to show that his heart is turned toward God, but these people are not. So this is not only their heart when they're in captivity, but it is a picture of Israel. It is a picture throughout their history. How do we know that? Well, we learned that in the very first chapter, didn't we? Put your finger here and turn back to chapter 1 of Isaiah. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. This is the introduction to the introduction. So the things that we learned there were major themes throughout the book that will be addressed. And it doesn't take in but 11 verses to start. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is the way we started the book. Idolatry and lack of true heart worship was a mark of the nation. And God holds them accountable for that even in captivity because their hearts are turned away from him. And how do we know their hearts are turned away? It's just not that they can't do this, the prescribed order of worship. Look what he says in chapter 43, back in Isaiah 43. The last couple of phrases of verse 23. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money. Sweet cane was part of what they made the anointing oil out of. In Exodus 30, you'll find those instructions. Or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. 
Now, the fat of the sacrifices were always God's. That, that was to be given to God, burned for God as a, as a pleasing aroma, a pleasing fragrance to him. And God is saying, listen, you, you have, I have not burdened you with the offerings, probably referring to the fact that they could not do the offerings as they were. I'm not holding you accountable for that, but you're not doing anything. Your hearts are turned far from me while you're in captivity. You are inward focused, singularly focused on yourself. But then the crushing blow in verse 24, but... You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. You're not waiting on me. You're not trusting in me. You're not worshiping in me. You're turning to other places for help. You're tempted and following through on worshiping idols. All that is sinful to me. And you are weary of me. And yet you have wearied. You have burdened me with your sins. This is their creator, their redeemer, their holy one of Israel, calling them out for the way that they have lived without waiting and trusting in him. And then as if, as if somebody flipped a different reel in for the movie, they just changed channels all of a sudden. Look at verse 25. I, I am, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. You have a sin problem because you're not turning to me for worship, which has created your sin problem, and the only way you can deal with your sin problem is to turn to me. Because I am, using that language that's picked up in the Gospel of John to tell us of the deity of Christ and what he will do. He is the one who blots out their transgressions. He is the one who forgives them. He will not remember their sins anymore. Now, this doesn't mean that God all of a sudden has a forgetful streak, right? This means that when God thinks about us as his people, he does not remember our sins in the sense that he sees the righteousness of Christ, And so when he promises that he will not remember them, he's saying on judgment day, I will not remember them. They will be taken care of. They will be blotted out. Now we know that that blotting out comes from the gift of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And all those in the old covenant looked forward to that Messiah who would come. It was faith and trust in God to provide for their sins the way he deemed fit. And so he throws this in in the middle of the judgment to remind them, I'm still here. You still run away from me and I'm still here because immediately, look at verse 26. Put me in remembrance. It just means let's together remember what has happened. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. In other words, set forth that the things you're doing are not sinful and wearying me. Prove that to me. It's that court language that we've seen throughout this section of Isaiah. We'll see again next week. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction, Israel to reviling. So who is the first father in verse 27? Some people say it's Adam. Some people say it's Abraham. Some people say it's Jacob. Seems to me in the context of Isaiah that we're talking about Jacob. We're talking about Jacob as the beginning, uh, name change to Israel, the 12 tribes, the beginning of the nation of Israel. It really wouldn't matter because all the way back to Adam, we have sin in God's creation. Amen? It would not matter. We have the same thing in Abraham, even though Abram and then Abraham is, is chosen by God and set out for him and made promises to, he was still a sinful man. 
I think in the context, especially since we're dealing with Jacob, this is Jacob talking about, there's been sin forever. The mediators, your mediators transgressed against me. The prophets, the priests, all who were in authority. Everyone has always transgressed against me. Are you going to be the one that makes it different? Are you going to be the one who actually rests in me and trusts in me? Because what he says is, the way it stands now, I will deliver Jacob to utter destruction. Put him under the ban. That language in Old Testament warfare where God says, destroy everything, keep nothing. That is what he says. It will be total destruction of the people who God has claimed for himself that refuse to trust in him. Now we're thinking things so many places in Isaiah. If we just stopped here, we would be in, in such trouble. And is there anybody in Isaiah who will listen You may think this way when you're walking in the world or witnessing the gospel. Is there anybody in this world who will actually listen to truth? Who will actually listen to the fact that they are caught up in sin that is killing them and will lead to their eternal destruction? And we have the words of life, the water of life, and will anyone ever listen? It seems like no one, we can't, everywhere we turn, people will just reject us because they do not want to hear the truth. That's the way God is dealing with these people here. And as he deals with them, we may think, There's no hope. We know that God has said he's in control and he's in charge, but there's no hope. You ever heard the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks? You know, that has hundreds of years of provenance. It actually was a kind of a saying in the 1500s in England where a writer by the name of John Fitzherbert wrote in a book, The Book of Husbandry, in 1534, he wrote this, the dog must be trained when he is a whelp little or else it will not be trained or else it will not be trained at all for it is hard to make an old dog stoop which in that language meant pick up a scent stoop down to pick up a scent it is hard to make an old dog pick up a scent and that has evolved into you can't teach an old dog new tricks well we know that's not true you know why we know because the Bible says, but also Mythbusters proved it wrong. You ever seen that show, Mythbusters, where they take some myth and they, they, they prove it wrong? Well, they actually proved this wrong. They took a couple of seven-year-old Malamutes who are known as being just lazy and don't want to learn anything, and they took them and they trained them five or six new tricks. And they said, see, you can teach an old dog new tricks. Well, we need to remember that. Remember, you're an old dog, and you were taught new tricks, When the Spirit invaded your life, everything changed for you. You were able to fight sin. You were able to determine right right from wrong. You were all of a sudden loving the things that you used to hate and hating the things that you used to love. The Spirit of God automatically transforms us. So Israel, whether whether they're the southern kingdom in Babylon or the northern kingdom in Assyria, doesn't matter where they are, whether it's us walking in the world, we're remembering that we have been a recreated people and it's had nothing to do with us. That's why, look at 44 verse 1, but, those great words, right? But now here, because God is going to remind those people that are under the ban that he is acting to preserve a remnant. We need to remember throughout all of our study when we deal with the nation of Israel, the the New Testament and the Old, but the New Testament's important for us to remember, reminds us that not all physical Israel was spiritual Israel. Not all Israel is true Israel. 
So when we shift back and forth from utter destruction, a God who cannot lie says, I will utterly destroy you, we need to understand that the very next verse that says, I'm doing a new thing as well, that he has a people for himself that he's redeemed. And we've been seeing the language all through here, right? His chosen ones, his servants, the ones he loves, he formed for his own glory, that he formed that they would sing his praise. There is, a, there is a remnant that he is after bringing to himself in that day and in our day. You and I are beneficiaries of that. And when we look at it, a world that says, I don't want to hear anything about truth. We don't worry about that. We trust God because he's doing a new thing. And he is teaching and training people to understand truth. Even though all their old tricks are sinful, he is redeeming their hearts. And we go out into that world and we preach the gospel. And that's what's happening with Isaiah right here as we move to the fourth promise. We might think that there is no hope, but God never changes. Um, Tim's already told us this morning, grace is scandalous. Right out of my notes up here, Tim. Excellent. Grace is scandalous. It's something that we're not expecting. It's something that we think, well, they don't deserve that. And we're so focused on our own singularity that we don't understand it. We don't deserve that. And that's what's happening in chapter 44. Yahweh will pour out his Holy Spirit on his delivered and chosen servant, and they will bear individual spiritual fruit. But now, chapter 44, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, Thus says Yahweh, who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. That intimate language of help, of forming, reminds us of Psalm 139, that he formed our inward parts while we were still in our mother's womb. The intimate relationship God has with these people in physical creation and spiritual recreation. And he says, and I will help you. Now that help is not just, you do all you can and I'll pick up the slack. That's a reminder that his help is everything. It's either he's helping us and we're saved or he's not helping us and we're lost. That's what's brought before us, this never-changing character of God. And what does he say? Again, twice last week, twice this week. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now this this little name, Jeshurun, it only occurs here and in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 33 and has the root meaning of righteousness. So he's saying in, in, in verse 2 that this people, Jacob, his servant, who I, I have chosen, which dozens of times we're hearing that moniker for God's chosen people, specifically the remnant within them, he's now calling them righteous. Not because of what they do, but because of his help, because of what he's doing. Because he has set his affections upon them to bring them back. Fear not, he says. For, verse 3, I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit, that should be capital S, upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like like willows by flowing streams. So this is a picture of mixing the physical description of the thirsty and dry land with the spiritual description of the thirsty and dry person. It reminds us of Psalms, like, I'm not going to have you turn to these, I'm going to just flip to them very quickly, but it reminds us of, of Psalms like Psalm 42, 
As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before the Lord? My tears have been my food day and night. And he goes on to paint this picture of these in in dire straits. And the only thing he wants is a taste of his God. The only thing he wants is to be satisfied by the presence and the character and the provision of his God. We see the same thing just a few Psalms later in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Just like it is to walk through, I want you to just do, think with me about what this is saying and what it's not saying. If there is a person walking through the desert and there is no water and they're parched with thirst, what is the only thing on their mind? It's getting something to relieve their thirst. If they're not thirsty, they're not thinking about that yet. They're not thinking about their need because they're self-sufficient in their understanding of where they are. There are men and women who are going through life right now that do not know they are thirsty. They don't know that they're in a dry and weary land. And when you hold out to them the living water of Jesus Christ, when you hold out to them that and God is already moving on their hearts, all of a sudden they realize that is what they need. And this is what God is promising to those people who are in that dry and weary land and want to come home, but they're also stuck in their sin. And God is saying, I am the one who redeems you and this is what I will do. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This will continue. This is a promise to the people of God. It's the language that's picked up in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 that quotes Joel chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out upon them. It's what Jesus says in places like John chapter 7 where he tells the thirsty among them to come to him. He tells them that if you will never thirst if you come to me. And he's not talking about physical water. He's talking about the rivers of life in John chapter 7 that John 7 tells us that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing here. There's no difference. This is what's being promised to them. Now, this is what we see carried out through the whole New Testament, right? This promise to the Old Testament people of God, those who are true Israel, that promise, Paul tells us in Romans 9 through 11, that God is not, is not slack in carrying out his promises. Paul uses himself as the example, doesn't he? He says, of course God fulfills these promises. You may look around you, first century, in Roman, in the time that Paul wrote Romans, you may look around you and you may think that God is not faithful to his promises because the Jews are rejecting Christ. But I stand before you as a prime example. And now, because the Gentiles are coming in, it's embarrassing the Jews, and they will come in. Those who are of faith will come in. They will come in according to the means of Christ, and not not as a whole group, but individually. He will do what he will do. All throughout the history, he redeems his people, Old Testament and New Testament. That's being promised here to their descendants as well. And when Jesus says, I will, when I go, I will leave you the Holy Spirit, he's leaving the Spirit to carry on the work that he was doing in us through his church. So much more we could say in that section, but I want you to see that this promise is for, it, it's ongoing. And this promise, look at, look at the third line of verse three. I will pour out my Spirit, saturated by and with God. God is doing it. 
And God is, is the one given in the Holy Spirit. So this is a people who is saturated with God. This is a people who is constantly thirsty for God. Their singular-minded search is for God himself. And that is our singular-minded search. When we go out into the world, we're walking in a parched land. If we're looking for our sustenance there and not waiting for what the Lord is doing, we are going to be thirsty. Our mind should be set on Christ, who is the living water. And then we are always satisfied. Now, it's not because we don't ever thirst again. It's that every time we thirst, he is satisfying it. It is an ongoing promise that we see for this the southern kingdom in, in captivity, as well as for us as well. And look what he says in verse 5. This individual salvation. This one will say, I am Yahweh's. The same word is, it, I'm not sure why the translations say another and another, but it's this one will say, I am Yahweh's. This one will call on the name of Jacob. This one will write on his hand the Lord's, the name himself, and name himself by the name of Israel. They're identifying themselves individually with this sovereign God who says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for his own sake. Not for anything we have done, everything that the Lord has done. And then we have this shift to what I'm calling the sixth promise, but will also be the introduction for uh, the beginning of next week's text as well. Yahweh is the only one able to deliver his people. All these promises, I don't know why you're looking anywhere else, Isaiah says, because it is only Yahweh. Look at verse six. Thus says Yahweh, reminder again of who he is, the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am, I am the first and the last. We've seen that language in Isaiah before. We'll see, we'll see it again. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? The challenge again that we have seen and we'll see again. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. The same challenge. If you can't do that, you are no God. And he again tells these people, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. You have, this is what he's saying. You have seen what I have done, so you don't need to fear. You can trust me in what you're going through now because I'm doing this new work that you can trust what I'm doing in the future because there is no rock. And then almost sarcastically or sardonically, God says, I don't see any. Of course there isn't. This is a transformation that God does in and through his people that he has done in Isaiah and he's doing in the New Testament and he's doing today. This complete transformation into something glorious. And the transformation is even more glorious oftentimes than the original because it's this transformation that now has no sin involved in it. I read, I, I'm... I love to read about restoration projects of art and architecture. And I was reminded this week of the Italian Renaissance masterpiece, the Madonna del Cardellino, the goldfinch. The Madonna for the goldfinch. This is a painting that was done in the 1500s. In 1505, Raphael did it. And he did it for a friend of his wedding. And about 40 years later, there was an earthquake that destroyed the house, and this painting was on wood, and it was destroyed in that earthquake. Um, I've read estimates of 17 pieces that it was, it was on wood, and it was broken into 17 different pieces. 
Well, immediately in, in that time frame, in the mid-1500s, they began with their knowledge of the time to restore it. They used some iron nails to try to put everything back together. They painted over things so you didn't see the cracks. And needless to say, it was not a very solid restoration. And over the years, it was lost, and then it was found again. And in the late 1990s and into the 2000s, there was a either six or 10 year, I read both marks, I don't, I don't really know how long it took, either a six or a 10 year restoration project. And they completely took it apart, took off all of, the, of the, the paint that was added and restored it. You can look online and you can see what the painting looked like before the restoration and after. And it's amazing, the difference in that restoration. And the restoration brought out things that people had not seen for centuries in that painting. Many people said the restoration was more glorious than the original because of how it was restored to its original position for even now for people to look at now. Well, I submit to you, that's what God is doing every day around us. He is restoring. He has created, and it was good, and sin entered the world, changed everything. And in Christ, he is spiritually today redeeming, recreating, restoring, bringing us back to life, bringing us into a relationship with the one true God, giving us a mission empowered by his spirit. And that is by the process of what God has deemed to bring him glory, his gospel expanding and the kingdom expanding. And every time he does it, he's restoring something else and it's even greater than the original. And all of this looking forward to the time that our bodies join that and for forever and ever and ever we will worship him. That is the idea that, I, that God, through Isaiah, wants the people in captivity to know and it's the Isaiah that he, and it's what we are to know as well. We are to be single-minded and our singularity is Christ because there is no other way for us to walk through this world and do it with joy, do it as the scripture says, declaring his praise, saying everything is okay because God is in control if we are not resting in him and not become weary in the walk. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace to us. Thank you for the glory of your text, the picture of Christ, the giving of your spirit to lead us and direct us and strengthen us and sustain us and convict us. And we ask you, Father, that as we contemplate these texts and these promises of deliverance, that you are always putting to the forefront of our mind that our singular passion is Christ and Christ himself. For he has taken away our sin. You have blotted it out in him. All of our sin. Not part, but all of it. So we are grateful to you for the blessings of salvation. And may you strengthen us to walk in this world knowing and proclaiming that Christ is Lord, so all is well. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.